I love baseball. I love football. I like cooking. morning class if i were to write that out for you to read the inclusion of the letter u in the word morning would let you know that i was making a pun as a goof like the fun in funeral you know anyway i'm andy sell host and producer of this very podcast if you like the show and i hope you do please rate and review us i don't know how it helps but i am assured that it does for those keeping score we are now officially at just as many extra dreaded episodes as we have actual you know ghoul school type schooly ghoul school episodes which may have you wondering is he ever going to finish season one and get back on the history part of this horror history podcast short answer yes long answer absolutely yes but today we have another extra dreaded You know the drill. Guest picks a movie, I pick a movie they have not seen to go with it for a double feature we each watch and discuss. But this is not just any extra dreadit. It's a special one in which we welcome back our first returning guest. It's also the first one released where the guest and I did not watch the movies together and did not record together in person, but via remote recording. It's not the first one where I did this period, but thanks to audio issues on the previous, it's the first to actually make it to your ears. R.I.P. Episodes with the Composers Podcast and George Chen will schedule another one with each of you soon. Today's guest is Dan Ast, who you may remember from the Christine and Fear No Evil fiasco. Dan's awesome. I was so happy I got to have him back and actually program a double feature for him that I am proud of and that he seems to have enjoyed. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Dan is not only a friend of mine, he is a dear friend of this podcast. He is the reason I am able to keep recording it, to be more precise. In addition, Dan is a multiple award-winning screenwriter. He spent the last year gathering honors and awards from various festivals and screenwriting competitions for his work, which I am a fan of, by the way, including the Nightmares Film Fest, Scream Fest, Screen Craft, the Nichols Academy Fellowship, and Scriptapalooza. Currently, I urge you to check out his series, L.A. Macabre on Amazon Prime. It's especially pertinent to this season that we are in of this podcast because the first season of L.A. Macabre is found footage. It's entirely found footage. The premise being that it is a web series and it was released as it was filming in late 2014 and early 2015. 2015, he wrote and fundraised for season two, deciding while writing that the scope had become too big and he would have to abandon the solely found footage format. Uh, But don't worry, there are still found footage components and elements here and there that are, a lot of them are really cool. It was shot in 2016 and 2017 and not released until 2020. And I recommend you watch the whole thing. It's so good. If you're into cults and true crime and Los Angeles history, L.A. Macabre is for you. And just like with podcasting, rating and reviewing shows on Amazon help those shows find a bigger audience. 
or so I'm told. So if when you watch Ellie Macabre and you enjoy it, you should review it to help Dan out a little bit. Anyway, this episode's assignment ended up being two from Richard Matheson. Dan chose one of his favorites, the 1971 originally made for TV but then expanded for a theatrical release, Steven Spielberg's first but not actually his debut, adapted by Matheson from his own short story, Duel. To go along with it, I assigned Dan, the Jack Arnold directed, adapted, also by Matheson, this time from his own novel, science fiction classic from 1956, The Incredible Shrinking Man. Boasting incredible optical effects by Roswell A. Hoffman, who got his start working with the legendary, beyond legendary, John P. Fulton on the James Whale-directed Invisible Man, a film which revolutionized visual effects, which was something John P. Fulton was actually pretty used to. If you are a classic monster or even classic movie buff in general, the name John P. Fulton is as familiar to you as Jack P. Pierce, or James Whale, or dare I say it, Bela fucking Lugosi. Fulton has over 250 visual effects credits on his IMDb page. He won three Oscars and served as the head of special effects for two major studios in his career. He got his start because while he was working as a surveyor for the Edison California Company, he ran across a D.W. Griffith production and just decided he wanted to be involved in motion pictures. And because this was an age where cis white men could do this kind of thing, he famously bullshitted his way into the industry and into a job working for D.W. Griffith. In no time at all, he was working for the Frank Williams Studio, one of the first, if not the first, special effects houses in Hollywood. Williams himself was the man who invented the double matting technique, and whose work is immortalized forever in F.W. Murnau's Sunrise. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about Roswell A. Hoffman and where he comes from and what he brings to The Incredible Shrinking Man. Now, the director, Jack Arnold, also not a slouch in the genre. Of the, I don't know, roughly 15 or so most talked about science fiction and horror milestones of the 1950s, Arnold had a hand in more than one, including probably his most celebrated film, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Ever heard of it? He was such a dependable filmmaker, he was even brought in to do reshoots on This Island Earth, which Roswell Hoffman also worked on. And with Arnold and Hoffman working together, along with just visionary art directors and set decorators, managed to pull off something truly special and unique in The Incredible Shrinking Man, and it's, it's so lasting. And the impression that the film left was so lasting that decades later, you know, we got Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, a more optimistic, adventure-minded riff on the same subject. And it's an idea that kind of refuses to go away. Even this season on RuPaul's Drag Race, there was an acting challenge that was very much a play on The Incredible Shrinking Man, with direct specific references even beyond the premise. And I just wanted to highlight that a little bit, because I think it's neat. And I know I keep saying stuff like, ooh, I want to do this in a future episode, or I want to do that in a future season, but gosh, I really just at some point want to get all the way into Richard Matheson's body of work. And I want to get into John P. Fulton a little more and, and what he accomplished and the legacy he left. There are just so many possibilities and so many things I'm excited to explore with this show. But that's all for another time. Let's... Rain it in and talk to writer, director, producer, and my friend, Dan Ast. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I think that's kind of like our generation, especially. We didn't have to grow up super quick. Yeah. You know, cis men too. Like we didn't have to become men, you know, the way our father's generation and their father's generation did. Right. Which is good. It's one of those things, right, where I constantly am feeling like, oh, I can't, I don't know how to build a desk. I don't know how to fix a car. This is very much kind of, I think, what, to the extent that Duel wants to have a conversation about anything, it's kind of about, like, that sort of manhood. I think Incredible Shrinking Man is is similar. Yeah. In that they're both about, you know, masculinity. But it's, it's interesting to see both of these films from a previous age where our ideas of that generation's men was very much like, oh, they never questioned their masculinity. They were never insecure about it or whatever, you know, or if they were insecure, it was like they overcompensated for it, right? Right. But like, no, these are both works that explore that idea, one from our father's generation and then one from their father's generation almost. Yeah. It's funny because we started this conversation (laughs) just about like, you know, this is how I feel. The point is it takes a while for us. Like I'm 40 and I'm only just now like capable of doing things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I also think that like what is asked of you is very different in this generation. A lot of people aren't expected to go and figure out how to cook or own a home or anything Mm -hmm. like that. And so like part of it is we were not as a generation asked to have to grow up as quickly. There's socioeconomic circumstances involved in that as well. And it was just like, you know, the gender roles in my house are very much... My house, Jesus Christ. The gender roles <laughs> in the apartment that I share with my partner. Yeah, my partner, like already, I say the word partner. And even in liberal as fuck Cali- LA, California, I would say partner to someone and they'd be like. People are still trying to get the hang of how to properly have these conversations or use the proper terminology. And yeah. terminology is kind of ever evolving and very fluid because people are still learning how to define it and to not over define it. And so I think that's part of it is, is that there's kind of a new way of understanding it and engaging it. And it's like this evolving thing and the conversation around it's evolving and the way that people engage with it is evolving. I mean, I feel like even in the last year, there are conversations on different, you know, even sociological spectrums that we wouldn't have been having in March of last year. So I think it moves really quickly. And even in LA, like people are not as on the same page as one would expect them to be. It's a, you know, city of 10 million, (laughs) 4 million people, 10 million in the county, you know, you know, I, we're all learning, we're all figuring it out. But there's also just a lot of enclaves in LA. Yeah. You know, it's really easy to like get into a bubble where you're not actually as exposed to new ideas or new things as you would expect. You know, you can have two very, say, milk toast neighborhoods that mm-hmm. just do not intersect and have different types of milk toast people in them. I like cooking. I like my swish. You know, I like being a little, you know, not a man. And, but at the same time, I still get self-conscious about it, right? I don't know. That's part of it too. It's like, you never know how much of the signifiers of masculinity were things you actually enjoyed or how much of it was just like, you felt like you were achieving the posture. Yeah. You know, masculinity largely being a construct anyway. Like, and I think there's a lot of that in both of these films, especially dual. Yeah. Like that scene where towards the beginning, when David goes into the, to call his wife. 
and he's yeah. putting his boots up. He's putting his shoes up on the table, like to try it. And it's, <laughs> he can't quite get it right. It's, and it's a- fascinating. Cause I watched the television cut recently. I was telling you, which I had never seen before. Mm. And I do prefer the theatrical cut. I do think that it lets it breathe some more. I do think that there are scenes in there that I don't necessarily need, but mm-hmm. I don't mind that they're there. And that scene where he goes and calls his wife is one of the scenes that they added, obviously. Like, you don't need to see the TV cut to kind of suss that out, you know? But it is interesting how that scene in particular and a few others were reinforcing a theme that was absolutely there in the TV cut. And that is his kind of relationship with his masculinity Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of society's relationship, that whole like radio thing that he's listening to the radio broadcast at the beginning where the dude is. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm no longer the head of the household. Yeah. You hear it more clearly and it's mixed higher and more overtly in the television cut. So you hear that whole thing. It doesn't ebb into the background as much in the TV cut. And you get the sense that it was meant to be more prevalent. And that when they started adding these scenes for the theatrical cut, that they found other ways to kind of continue to reinforce that theme. So they were able to kind of go ahead and use that automotive pun here. They were able to let off the gas (laughs) on it a little bit. But yeah, I, th- I thought that that was pretty interesting. Also, that you would like, like that they would take that scene where he calls his wife and they have this conversation about his masculinity, and then he's not quite able to get his foot up. Just how aware that they were of trying to continue that theme in their reshoots. I was wondering too. Then okay, so is the stuff in the bar? No, that was the television cut as well. That's one of those only scenes that I just don't need in either movie. Like, it's a good scene. It's very Hitchcock, and I like it. But it's one of, like, we're out of the car, and I don't really want to be out of the car, and I don't really want to watch him engage with other people. Yeah, getting out of the car is one thing where it's like, okay... So <laughs> we're going to put a pin in this. So I was say, we should start from the beginning. It's let's like, start from the beginning here. The film that you chose is Duel. 1971, Steven Spielberg's Duel. Steven Spielberg and Richard Matheson, which we'll get to that, originally made for ABC Movie of the Week. It uh, premiered on November 13th, 1971, based on the short story by Richard Matheson that ran in Playboy in April of 1971. It was a, it's a 20-page short story. Yeah, I've never not read that, it. Oh, I, it's good. And it's actually not drastically different than the movie, especially from the TV cut of the movie. It's based on an experience, and I think this is interesting because a, yeah. a lot of Duel was filmed up in Santa Clarita, Canyon Country, Agua Dulce, Acton, kind of in and around the 14 on its way out to like Palmdale. There's this kind of rural and suburban area north of the valley in Los Angeles. It was filmed around there. If you go a little further north than that, you have the 126, which is another, I guess, I don't know if it's quite a freeway. It's like a route. Sometimes a freeway, sometimes it's not. I mean, it's just north of Magic Mountain. In 1963, Richard Matheson and a friend were, I think, coming back from a game of golf. And they got run off the road by a semi that was tailgating them and harassing them. Which, which is, is not where... uncommon in <laughs> in, yeah. in California. It, it obviously, you know, inspired the story for Duel. And the thing that always stuck out to me about it, the two things that stuck out to me about it was, one, that it happened on November 22nd, 1963. Yeah. So it happened the day that yeah. Kennedy was assassinated, which yeah. is really strange. And that the 126, where this thing happened to him and inspired the story eight years later they're filming the movie on the uh, in and around the 14 like five miles away you know that it would that most of the movie was filmed so close to where the real incident happened it was kind of interesting to me yeah well because didn't he also like he drove it to make sure and like 
dictated or something into a I read something about how he he did something to make sure that he had every detail in the drive like he drove back out oh. to where it happened or something and like recorded it or he went oh. home immediately and just started tape recording what had just happened oh I um, didn't know that that's yeah. interesting and I haven't so I haven't read the short story do they get out of the car in the story I honestly don't remember that okay it's you know it's a dense 20 pages because there's not a lot of dialogue yeah. but it's it was good. I remember feeling it wasn't too different. I, that's one of those books that like, it's a collection of Matheson stories. Mm-hmm. I love Matheson, but I lent it to somebody like 10 years ago and I haven't seen it since. Oh, so no. I haven't read it in a long no. time. Um, I ordered a new copy before this podcast just because it inspired me to want to own the copy of this yeah. story again, but I haven't received it yet. Yeah, That was your choice. And for people who've listened to your previous episode with us. <laughs> There's a theme between the two movies you've chosen. Of course, the first one being 1983. Yes. Christine, John Carpenter, and this yep. 1971 Duel. Uh, both movies about killer cars, uh, you know, if you want to simplify it. Right, right. And both very different movies about killer cars, too, but both featuring a Plymouth. Yeah. It's yep. a thing that they have in common and both based on literary works by prolific, legendary genre writers. Yeah. And I mean, in Stephen King's case, he kind of was like the heir apparent to what Richard Matheson was doing, which was mm-hmm. taking horror out of like these distant Eastern European castles and kind of bringing them into the suburbs and into the cities. I read a quote once that was essentially saying Stephen King takes the handoff you know, takes the football from Matheson and runs with it. And I've always kind of thought of them that way as Matheson was Stephen King before there was Stephen King. Yeah. That, no, that and not, makes... not that he's the only one, of course, but like, no. you know, he's the one that <laughs> obviously jumps to my mind. Makes perfect sense. Well, and one was directed by Carpenter directed Christine. And we, we've talked about how it really does feel like it's one of his last truly like cinematic movies Yeah. In a a lot of ways. Again, not that I don't celebrate later Carpenter. I do. But whereas Duel, of course, was made for television. And it was was only his second feature length piece, right? He did. I um, I thought it was his first. From what I read, he had he had another, I guess, extended episode scenario. It's something called. Yeah, I vaguely remember something like this. It, I mean, it's obviously widely touted as his first film. And like Spielberg's kind of famous for building his own legend as he went. Mm -hmm. So I could see him kind of when he finally gets a hit. That's his first film. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But this was his first thing where it was like this guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he made it for about a half a million dollars was their budget. I think they made it for like 450000 because his goal was to come in under budget. And he was supposed to do it in 10 days. He did it in 12, but he was getting so much good stuff and doing yeah. so well staying on schedule that when they, you know, they were basically like, I don't remember what the producer's role or title was exactly, but there was basically a babysitter on set who was just yeah. like, you've got 10 days, but if you do good and you're not wasting time, we might be able to give you one or two more. And so I think it was 12 days to finish the shoot, but it came in around 450,000 and he was very smart about it. And he was trying to turn it into a calling card for like, Hey, this kid's scrappy and he brings him in on time and under budget. And you know, they turn out really well. And it's one of the things I do love about it is its simplicity and its scrappiness. And it's so cinematic with so few toys. It's a challenging thing to shoot. Yeah. 
incredibly yeah. challenging for a lot of reasons. One, it's like, you know, you can see where he fought too. Yeah. <laughs> you can right. see where he fought or maybe it's more of a, cause I don't know, but it's, you can see where this, where the network trusted him maybe mm-hmm. rather than yeah. he had to fight because it's hard to imagine someone with nothing under his belt, really fighting and winning. Yeah. There is no non-diegetic music until 25 minutes in. Yeah. Everything leading up to it. And in fact, that entire beginning where he's, you know, I mean, first of all, just the the sound, you, you hear the radio first before anything and it's black. And then the reveal as you know, backing out of the garage is, I mean, that's, come on. The the way it continues with the, was the camera on the grill? Yeah. Of this kind of thallium? Is that, I mean, they had to have had, because it's like right there, it's nose level, you know, with every other car. Well, it's it's interesting because I think one of the things that would be important to do is identify which scenes are the new ones and which ones are the old ones. Yeah. And that camera on the grill stuff is new. Really? That is okay. A, that is a theatrical thing. So the original cut starts really like the first stuff in the desert, the fence and the mm-hmm. horizon and a little red car on the horizon. And you're getting your credits over that oh Um, you know and so there's something about the the theatrical cut it adds the scene with the school bus the scene at the gas station where he goes in to call his wife the gas station scene is there but he doesn't go in and call his wife you know in that one and it adds the part with the train where it comes up behind him and starts trying to push him into the train the rest of it is mostly like pacing stuff you know, like, I feel like there are some shots that just hold a little longer. It's allowed to breathe a little more. So yeah. even though not every new scene is all that necessary, I do actually think that the theatrical cut is paced better. And that weird voiceover you hear from him when he's in the cafe, the narration in his head, that happens more often than TV cut. That, okay. that happens sometimes when he's driving. It kind of fills in some of the story beats you know, that you get from the theatrical cut with the new scenes. But ultimately, like a lot of the really great stuff is still in both versions of the movie. It is one uh, of those films where I can't imagine either cut being like, you know, no matter what the differences are, it's like one of those things where it's like, this is the animal it is. Yeah, it's very much the same movie. And then you're just picking the one that suits your taste. And the one that suits my taste is the theatrical cut. But it is interesting you know, determining what choices he had to make in 12 days before it was successful yeah. and before they decided to add another 20 minutes to it. It's interesting then because knowing that that opening was for the theatrical cut was shot later after it was a success on television. Because what it invoked for me was this film called The United States of America, which was an experimental movie that Betty Gordon and James Benning made where they just had a camera in the back of their car as they literally oh, wow. drove across the country. And oh, it's wow. a film, but it literally, it's just shots of different states that they're driving through with the radio as the only soundtrack. And it's, yeah, it's from 75. It was for the bicentennial that they did it. I think they had a grant. That opening really reminded me of that because you're just seeing him move from Los Angeles. He goes through downtown at one point, even though I'm pretty sure that garage he pulls out of like the next thing you see looks like glendale or I, yeah i think it was in toluca lake actually yeah, but yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, they definitely went out of their way to. to uh, so, like, then he drives me. back south to Los Angeles or whatever. But you, but you see him like moving further and further outside of civilization as we you know know it in Los Angeles. With yeah. and there's even that little trick with the radio receiver sound, kind of making a staticky sound. Yeah, and it's cool. But that's also one of those things where it's like, it, okay, I can see why how that would be something they'd added. But a lot of the changes, especially in the beginning of the movie, are really just kind of letting it breathe some more, which actually work really well, especially since I feel like the school bus scene and the railroad crossing scene are both pretty aggressive compared to a lot of what happens earlier in the movie otherwise. So kind of getting it to breathe so that those scenes don't overwhelm too early seems pretty helpful. On the school bus scene also gives us, you know, the society thinks he's crazy thing. You know, yeah. it's, like it's Virginia Madsen seeing Candyman and no one else does. It's, yeah, you know, it's that's just the first thing that popped into my head. But there are a lot of things in this film that are tropes, you know, where it's like interesting, either, either this is where they came from or... This is a more interesting version than we're used to. Yeah. And, and yeah. the fact that it is mostly inside the cars at the the entire time is another one of those things where it's like, you see that in a lot of movies, but it's the opening to the movie. There are so many. I mean, Joyride. Joyride, uh, but, basically, you know, a, a very broad remake of Duel. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah, and it's interesting because I do think that a lot of tropes did come from this movie. I think it was more felt than people want to acknowledge. The way I describe it to people is people know these tropes already. So I say, you know, it's the original little car getting chased by a semi through the desert movie, and like yeah. everybody's like, oh yeah, like they know that they've seen this trope, they've yeah. seen this, this story before, and I don't know if there's another one prior to this that I'm aware of, but it definitely seems like the most prevalent and the best version of it. I've never mm-hmm. seen a movie do this better than Duel. And so every once in a while, I feel like I read some threats about a remake and it's like, no, you don't need to. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, you know, like Joyride is as close as we Joy, need to. Joyride's yeah. fine too. You know, watch Joyride. Yeah. There it is. And it's good. It's, yep. It doesn't need to be updated beyond that, you yeah. know? And yeah, I mean, like, because, you know, if somebody was going to remake Duel, the first thing I would want them to do is set it in 1971. Like, <laughs> so there's just no reason to remake it. Exactly. The other thing, too, is it's a, it's both of these films, I want to say, I have seen before, but I haven't seen either of them in a very long time. And this one, I, I always kind of wonder, because you talk about it a lot. We know each other well. We talk a lot. You know, and when I lived there, we saw each other a lot. I know Duel is one of your favorites things yeah yeah (laughs) just aesthetically like it it, i mean just kind of across the board it's a favorite movie of mine and i'm very protective of it because i feel Mm -hmm. like it's underappreciated and i don't usually run into anybody that even if they love it they don't seem to love it as much as i do yeah (laughs) well definitely christine's the same way there yeah it permeates a lot of my work i feel like there's a Mm -hmm. lot of that aesthetic that kind of like out alone in the desert thing that i just really respond to and I really think that Duel might be the most core organic place that it comes from for me. Because yeah. when I when I start thinking about or exploring that dynamic when I'm thinking about writing or filmmaking, that's the movie that comes closest to the things that I like to celebrate in that setting. Yeah, it's kind of, it's the distilled. This is the skeleton of so much of what we see in, you know, modern genre film. Yeah. In a lot of yeah. ways. And it's, and it's so simple and it's so raw. And I think that that's part of its power, but that's also 
why I probably haven't rewatched it in such a long time is that it's, this is never a thing that I have like cognitively acknowledged. This is never a thing that's like been in the front of my brain that I've said, oh, this is why I haven't watched Duel in a while. That movie is fucking triggering. Like, if you have any kind of, like, fear on the road or, like, traumatic experience driving, this movie, it rattles you. The way that it's shot, the way that it's cut, even now, 50 years later yeah it's, it feels uh, very plausible like you can tell that it came from a real place that it came from a real experience that matheson had because it's everything about it is so plausible and, yeah. and even today even if you had cell phones it doesn't mean you're going to get reception it doesn't mean you're going to know how to give directions to where you are you know if you're getting tailgated by a giant semi on like the sierra highway or soledad canyon road and yeah. you're back i've driven long stretches of soledad canyon road and there's a good 15 minute stretch where I never had cell reception and I would tell friends like okay I'm, I'm going down this road now I'll text you when I'm out the other side but <laughs> yeah. there, there are still ways that this can happen to you yeah. Um, yeah. and it's or even never just- stopped being creepy even just the the implications of it, you know, it's one of those movies that if it sticks in your head at any point, I just drove across the country, not just obviously, it's been like eight months now, but I was white knuckling most of that drive because a lot of it was on these empty roads with trucks passing me at ridiculous speeds, sometimes at night, sometimes in the mountains in some places. Like I white knuckled a lot of that. I was like anxious. I was a mess of nerves doing yeah. that drive. And then I watched this and I'm like, oh fuck, this is why I haven't watched watch this movie in in like almost 20 years if not more because it's visceral it's a visceral film and to think of it as like you know this is the theatrical version of a made-for-tv movie that was adapted from a short story that was based on this experience this guy had and through all of those filtrations of generation all those removals from the initial source it still feels raw it still frays you you know yeah and nothing about it feels like television really yeah. it's maybe like one step removed or two steps removed from the rawness of like the texas chainsaw massacre yeah you know yeah. the only difference is it's just not viscerally. yeah it's not viscerally gory or upsetting no. but in terms of putting you there in the experience and it feeling very experiential it gets close it doesn't obviously it doesn't go as far as texas chainsaw does because there are still these more cinematic i don't want to say cinematic but these more like movie things in yeah, Duel, yeah. like voiceover, like a score that eventually creeps in that is more obviously a score than I would say anything in the Texas Chains on that. Yeah, and it's, but, it sounds very Bernard Herman at times. Like it's very... Yeah. Also, there's times when that score is like kind of pretty unique percussion wise there's some interesting stuff even in that music even i mean there are definitely cues that are like okay you you like psycho i get it but there's also like some really fresh stuff even in that yeah you're right it does a lot more produced motion picture stuff right but you know in terms of its effectiveness and its potency and its rawness i think it has that kind of same indelible quality that texas chainsaw massacre also has in terms of not feeling diluted by time like the way that the texas chainsaw massacre is still an incredibly effective upsetting film remakes and remakes later none of them ever really come close to the first one in terms of how effective 
they are and digging in and sticking with you. I feel like that's probably true for Duel as well in terms of you don't need to remake it. All of the magic is still in it. Yeah, it hasn't lost anything. Yeah, and the only reason I compare them to is because of that raw quality. It's not meant to be a quality comparison or, no, or no, a no, scare no, comparison yeah. to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but yeah. just you know the but idea that is, they don't need to be messed with. You it know? is an interesting film to reference specifically because it's Toby Hooper who worked with Steven Spielberg. Yeah, on Poltergeist. Yeah, yeah. and who was offered the job of E.T. and turned it down. And then, and also, did, did you know Toby Hooper is in Coming to America? No, I didn't know he was in it. That's funny. I, we rewatched it recently, and there's a, a guest at a party scene at McDowell's, at McDowell's yeah. house. And there's like this one guy, and I'm like, that looks like, you know, I'm like, it's not Dante, it's not Landis. But it would make sense for one of them to be in. I mean, because it's a Landis movie. It's not Frank Oz. Like, who is that? It's somebody I know. It's so familiar. And he's only, and I looked it up. It's Toby Hooper. Yeah, I don't funny. know what he's doing in there. <laughs> so, okay. We we will talk more about Duel. But sure, this, sure. I want to I know, because you're our first returning guest. And the last time that you and I did this, I mean, I, st- I don't necessarily regret pairing Fear No Evil with Christine. <laughs> <laughs> But admittedly, we had a whole thing where that was not necessarily the movie for it. Right, right. And it's funny because I was thinking more recently that like, I generally stand by my desire to have had something that paired more obviously with Christine. But I also have come around a little bit to like the things that do pair. I see why you paired them. So totally. I have this aversion and this is, I'm kind of a shithead in this way. I have this aversion to making the obvious pairings. And again, with this one, it's another killer car movie, another killer vehicle movie. And it's like, okay, so am I going to learn my lesson this time? You know, am I going to give you wheels of terror or joyride or something else? No, because I still have that aversion to doing the obvious thing. I have a friend who's going to be on the show at some point who chose the movie The Bad Seed. And of course, the obvious thing there is just choose another killer kid movie, idiot. But I'm not doing it. I refuse. I'm like, I'm searching far and wide for something that I feel will go well with it. And I keep coming up a little short. (laughs) But I don't want to do like The Good Son or Orphan or... Something like that. You know, I want to do something that pairs with it on uh, something uh, on a level a little more esoteric or a little more like something where there's space for conversation instead of just, oh, it's. Oh, yeah. It's both of these movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, and I feel like this is this is a better pairing than Fear No Evil, right? With Christine. Yeah, e- even if only on the most basic level that they're both Matheson films. Yeah. But yes, I also agree that like thematically they're discussing a lot of things that are really interesting. Um, and I don't know if that's just because Matheson had a thing for discussing mm-hmm. masculinity mm-hmm. in American culture. Because I mean, like, you know, in Duel, it's obviously through car culture, the very American West with the very American car being chased by the very american semi and it just felt very much a conversation about that and then with your film it's obviously a discussion about masculinity but like more in the home dynamic Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then having to kind of break out of that and start fending for yourself and i will say this is probably the first of these that i am actually like really confident about and really proud of like from a programming perspective. And it's not yeah. just because they're both Matheson, but like, I, and this is, forgive me, because this is going to get wanky. <laughs> not just because they're both by Matheson, but they're both by Matheson, one before the 60s, 
and one yeah. after the 60s. And that one after the 60s very much specifically connected to the event that altered the course of the 60s. Yeah. Or an yeah. event that altered the course of that decade. Yeah. But, I mean, several decades even. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Oh, thanks a lot. We're still there. Yeah. Do you think in the universe where Kennedy wasn't assassinated, they had speculative dystopian science fiction about what if Kennedy had been assassinated? <laughs> You think they even close to get it right? Right. No, I bet you they have like speculative fiction about like if Nixon hadn't been assassinated, like would we all, <laughs> would the world be the utopia that it is now? You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my God. Something strange like that. So there's that, but there's also that they both explore the concept of masculinity and manhood, and they both explore the concept of masculinity and manhood as it stacks against signifiers of society or some hidden social order mm. again i said this was going to get wanky i mean it might as well you know that's yeah. <laughs> you know and, the, and and like i said i haven't seen either of these films in a very long time so i even noticed a couple happy accidents when i rewatched both of them and i'm going to say so when i watched them i did it in the order of chronology i did incredible shrinking man for my peak at late 50s era matheson diminishing manhood and then I did Duel for the post-60s diminishing manhood yeah. Matheson piece. And is that how you watch them as well? Yeah, I had not yet seen The Incredible Shrinking Man. So, And I, I rewatch Duel maybe once a year, once every six months or something like that. But when I watched them for this podcast, I watched Incredible Shrinking Man first, and then I watched Duel, happened to find the TV cut, which that's how I watched that for the first time. Wow. So that was kind of fun. But yeah, so that, I same order. And do you think that that played well? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like watching it in that order actually made it easier to kind of highlight the similarities because you mm -hmm. see it more as a progression. So yeah. yeah, that was helpful as well. Yeah, I caught little things in Duel that were like almost like callbacks to Incredible Shrinking Man. And there was even a line of dialogue in The Incredible Shrinking Man that seems to predict Duel. I don't know if you remember when he was in The Doctor. So Incredible Shrinking Man, real quick. If you haven't seen it, Robert Scott Carey, another great name, you know, David A. Mann and Robert Scott Carey <laughs> is on vacation on a boat with his wife and a cloud out of nowhere comes and gets glitter on him. And it's a radioactive <laughs> cloud, we find out later. And he starts getting smaller. And it's it's based on the novel just called The Shrinking Man by Matheson in 1956. And that combines with some insecticide that happens at some point, And then he starts getting really, really small. And they think they fix it. Science thinks they fix it. Wrong. They don't. And it's, I don't want to spoil anything because the other thing is, Duel's one of those movies that when you, if you haven't seen it, when you watch it, it is deceptively simple. It's simple on a level that you weren't expecting from the movie. If it's a movie you've heard about a bunch. Incredible Shrinking Man is the opposite. Like it's a movie that is like way more complex yeah. than, than you think it's going to be. And the ending is just like, Jesus, like, wow. <laughs> like, it, it had a lot of ambition and a lot on its mind. Yeah. You know, that you would not have expected from the title, from the premise, even from like from the, how from the things genre. start to play out. Yeah, you're just watching it play out and you don't realize that it's going to have this much on its mind or that it's yeah. going to be willing to go this way. So I was, yeah, definitely surprised and impressed with that. It's, it's much headier science fiction. And I'm not trying to, I don't want to be dismissive towards science fiction or even like 50s science fiction because I love all of that. 
you know? Yeah. And a lot of it is headier than we give it credit for if you're not familiar with it. If you're only familiar with 1950s science fiction through the ways that it's been satirized or parodied throughout the decades, then right. you should go visit some of that work because it's got a lot more on its mind than you think it does. But even by those standards, this film is like kind of working on a different space. I'm surprised it's not discussed more for that reason. Right? It's not discussed nearly as much as something like Day the Earth Stood Still or Invasion of the Body Snatchers or Think from Another World or maybe one, it's not space horror. You know, it's not space age. There's no cosmic implications in it. It really is like, well, some shit just went wrong (laughs) in our post-industrial chemical obsessed age. I wonder if it's because maybe the ones that you kind of listed are a little more obviously political parallels. And Credible Shrinking Man being more of a, a social parable or discussion. It's a, it's a much different kind of allegory, and it's a harder allegory. And I, I wonder if that's why it's not as... Well, it's also such a, like, not to dismiss the premise, but it's such a silly premise in yeah. service of such an interesting, dark idea yeah. that... It's one of those blink and you miss it movies. If you're not there to do the work and you're not there to really think about it and dissect it, then you are just watching a movie about a guy getting smaller and occasionally finding that funny and occasionally finding that terrifying and Mm -hmm. just kind of like letting it be that and then getting to the end and being like, oh, oh, damn. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, because really, too, if you distill it, its central allegory seems to just be the concept of mortality. Yeah. Like in a yeah. way, the shrinking in the film is just a metaphor for aging. Yeah. We're all yeah, going yeah, to die. That's what he's contemplating the entire time. It's yeah. one of those things that's like, oh, if you're not thinking about death today, here you go. <laughs> There's, I mean, I just, I guess to get a little spoilery, because I mean, to talk about it is part of the fun. So if you don't want to hear a spoiler, then skip this part or whatever. Um, But, but like, even, you know, when you're discussing it in that context, it's not just the final voiceover, you know, and the final kind of epiphany that he has, but that he has that epiphany when he finally has slain the spider and he has this hunk of cake in his hand and then he decides he's not hungry it definitely feels like well man you spend your whole life fighting for this thing that doesn't end up meaning a whole lot when you die you know exactly the whole time it's like you start to realize as he gets smaller these little victories he has aren't going to mean anything tomorrow again it's almost serving that allegory for the passage of time and the closer to death we all get where it's just like yeah cool you got your hook up on the thing and that was great for you at the time but like it's not gonna matter and it's almost like if at the end of duel you know when dennis weaver is like kind of having his little party out on the (laughs) after the truck goes down and in a way it does because how does duel end it ends with him sitting there just throwing rocks into the canyon yeah just kind of like well what do i do now where do i go from here i don't have a car (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but like this thing that gave my life meaning for the last day it's now gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of those experiences just specific to Duel where like when you're in it, it's life altering. Yeah. But like tomorrow, this guy is going to wake up next to his wife and like make breakfast again and then like talk to an insurance yeah. agency and go buy a new car. And this is going to be some crazy thing that happened to him once. Yeah. It probably won't even be a thing that changed his life or his relationships yeah. or, you know, that's always interesting to me to think like in our own lives, there are these huge events that can happen for like an hour 
one day that we don't remember as huge events later. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. they just felt huge at the time. Mm-hmm. An accident you saw, an interaction you had, someone yeah. you helped. But oh you my know, god, a relationship you were in, a you friendship know? you had. Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, the next day or whatever, you know, it's it's kind of like this guy's life has not been fundamentally changed, I don't think, just because of this victory and that he just needs to go get a new car the next day and file some police yeah. reports and he'll always remember it. But I don't think he goes out and starts a new hobby or finds a new lease on life or, you know, like. That's another interesting thing, because to me. And I don't know if this is something that you just, I read into this film now being a person who exists in 2021, if Matheson didn't mean it to read this way. And if, in fact, maybe David A. Mann is 100% a representative of how Matheson views himself, warts and all. I don't know. But it doesn't seem like Mann really has an arc. Right. Outside of just the physical act of surviving and then defeat. I mean, he does when he decides like, okay, I'm putting on the sunglasses. I'm making my stand. I'm fighting back. You know, I'm reaffirming, reasserting my manhood. But it's like he he hasn't been humbled by any of it. You know, it doesn't seem like he's still kind of being a dick to people throughout the film. Like, like he hasn't learned. Like, okay, maybe I should be more polite. Maybe that's he's, how this started. Yeah, he's he's pretty unremarkable throughout. He has to man up, so to speak. Yeah, but going straight for the pun there, you know. Yeah, it's not much of an arc. I mean, it's just again, I don't think that he's changed forever. You know, yeah. he's oh. already a grumpy, somewhat confrontational person to begin with. So I think it's definitely kind of in there with the incredible shrinking man it's kind of summoning your survival instincts Mm -hmm. to kind of rise to an occasion that may change things for you may not and i think that goes to your point about the incredible shrinking man where he's working so hard for these small victories that don't buy him anything yeah especially on a rewatch when you when you know where it's all going it's even it's even more you know like oh damn also it could be argued that his arc he only has the epiphany he has because he moves into this next state of being because he he ant-mans into the quantum realm or whatever like that thing he says about that's another thing that connects these two films is david has his internal monologues in Duel, and there's also that voiceover narration in Incredible Shrinking Man. I mean, there are, there are a bunch of like these kind of cosmetic or you know aesthetic similarities between the two. In addition to that, which okay, so the scene where he goes to the doctor and he says they're asking him about like, have you been exposed to insecticides or radiation or whatever? And he says, by the way, that's a great bunch of montage about all the tests had to take and it's almost like a it's medical horror you know it's almost like regan going to all these doctors in the exorcist he has to have a barium x-ray i don't know if you've ever had a barium x-ray it's awful Uh, you have to keep this awful barium fluid shit down uh i threw it up immediately and then you have to drink it again don't do it but yeah so he says this great thing i keep getting sidetracked When he's at the doctor, he says, remember that day I came home and told you about the truck to his wife? And it's like, wait, wait a second. Did Scott Carey have this experience oh, <laughs> that, man. that David Mann has in Duel? It, and it didn't teach him anything either? You know, my, my, like the biggest disappointment with that revelation is knowing that this didn't take place after the Kennedy assassination and that it's not an intentional reference. 
Oh my god! Because I, I kind of wish it had been like Richard Matheson planting an Easter egg, or like Tarantinoing his world a little bit. Well, maybe Richard Matheson is the protagonist from Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, written by Stephen King, who wrote Christine, and he time traveled back to nineteen fifty six to tell himself, wow. "Hey, put this line in the screenplay about a truck really, in a really fucking yeah." Movie. Wow! Not only was that really impressive how you did that, but but actually the timeline makes sense. Yeah, right. Because he does go back five years in the past, and they and, and maybe he uh, met himself at that golf game. At that, uh, maybe he was the truck driver that ran himself off the road. Maybe he had to be in order to make sure that history went the way it was supposed to. He had to run himself off the road. Like these are the questions other podcasts are afraid to ask. Damn. <laughs> but anyway, so at the end of Incredible Shrieking Man, he even has that epiphany about the the connection between the infinitesimal and the infinite. Maybe yeah. this is the future of man, that I'm the man of the future. And he says that thing about unbelievably small and the unbelievably vast eventually meet. Yeah. And he's like accepted it. He's accepted that he's moving on to this other state of being. And he says, to God, there is no zero. And in the, the novel, I guess it's literally he says something about if nature can exist on any level, maybe intelligence can too. And so oh, it's that's like- a good line. Right? And it's like an afterlife thing. And it's like, maybe that's what had to happen for him to have that epiphany. Like maybe the epiphanies yeah. here are, are never, are always going to elude us. Because it's almost like you could see at the end of Duel, Dennis Weaver throwing the rocks in and it's where it's like, yeah, I didn't die this time. Yeah. You know, but the next truck might get me. You don't get the sense that Dennis Weaver is like so much more thankful for his life at the end of it. He's just happy to still be alive. Yeah. He's just like, he doesn't go and like write the great American novel or anything. The cat didn't get me, but you know, the spider might. I really did have this dark moment where I was like, if this was a Twilight Zone episode, this is where it would end. And it would just be the wife coming home and realizing that the cat had got him or like, you know, that like just him being like a dead mouse on the floor. Yeah, it's pretty bleak as it is where I mean, the wife in terms of how I mean, like she leaves thinking that that was it, that that is what happened. The cat actually killed him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just where she leaves it. And man, it's so cruel. The number of times they make it almost work out for him and like her finding him or her his brother finding him or, you know, they do this really interesting way so you're almost distracted from that because they're doing this like desert island wilderness survival story with him it's just that he's not on an island out in the middle of the pacific he's just shrunk down but it's still the same principle where he's like trying to get people's attention to rescue him and it's never going to happen there's a raft scene you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's doing a lot of these things that but on just it's just very different than how they've been presented in any other way. And to that end, there are times where it feels like, again, wanky, but, you know, in Duel, David Mann kind of disappears into the desert as he gets further away from civilization. And here it's his size is shrinking from civilization. He's almost literally disappearing into the void of domestic life because he's disappearing into his own home. And these things that he's always taken for granted that are mundane have now become enormous significant things in his survival not just his life but is he disappearing into it or is he having a little adventure because there are times where like <laughs> when he makes that rope with the pin that he pulls from the pin cushion into a grappling hook with the yarn yeah. 
and yeah. he's doing that, and it's like it almost looks like he's kind of you know he's having fun solving problems. There are moments of victory for him where he's truly like thriving and very proud of himself. Yeah, and, and you're rooting for him, even just him doing little things like like getting the match to strike so that he can like burn the rope so that he can use the rope. Yes, you know, it's just yes. like you're like yeah, nice. You know, MacGyver your way through this. This is going to be good. You know, yeah. and he's pleased with himself. But yeah, there's that creeping dread that you mentioned a few minutes ago where it's just. Yeah, but you're not going to stop shrinking. You're not. You know, like. It's not going to find you. And. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're going to kill this spider and you're going to get to this food and it's not going to matter. It's really you know? not going to matter. Yeah. You're good. Like, that, that thing seems so important to you. <laughs> I have some friends who are going to listen to this podcast and, like, this level of, like, existential dread is just really kind of fuck with them. Uh, I mean, it's fucking with me right now. And <laughs> yeah, I'm it is. Like, it's interesting that you bring up the Twilight Zone, though, because, you know, he wrote for the Twilight Zone. He wrote, like, the second or third most, like, the third most scripts for the show, something like that, right? Yeah, I think Serling was first. Beaumont wrote a lot, but... Yeah, I thought Beaumont was the second most. I don't know any of this authoritatively, so don't... You know, I... I used to know, but it's like everything else. It's like the truck and duel. Like that was a long time ago and I don't think about <laughs> it anymore. But yeah, so he wrote for Twilight Zone. That's the other thing. Matheson is like so fucking prolific. His, yeah. I could do multiple hour long podcasts just on different sections of his career. That's one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to do this as well, because we're kind of skipping by jumping from Incredible Shrinking Man to Duel. We're skipping yeah. over whole decade where Matheson did a lot. A lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, of course, later on, he did his stuff with Dan Curtis, which is all golden. And he's so prolific. But yeah, he wrote for Twilight Zone. And I know that when he originally wrote Duel, or when he got the idea for Duel, he apparently did pitch it to a number of television shows. Oh. And I'm wondering if Twilight Zone was one of them. Yeah. And if they, because it was still on the air, and he was still writing for them. And it's only a 20-pitch short story. You can easily see how he could have turned that into a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really glad that they didn't. Um, yeah, because they've already got, like, they had some road horror stuff. The Hitchhiker episode, they've had a killer car episode. Yeah. Also, like, what you might need to do to duel to make it fit in the Twilight Zone, the kind of, like, otherworldly <laughs> aspect to it to turn it into an allegory or a lesson, but also, like, is the truck supernatural? Are you really the driver of your own truck, you know? Yeah, is this actually you from the future? <laughs> yeah, like, the roads you would have to go down to complicate a very beautifully simple piece of tension. I'm glad that they didn't. As much as I love The Twilight Zone, I just wouldn't want this story to be Twilight Zoned. It's also the kind of thing where, and this speaks to the challenge of producing something like Duel, it is the kind of thing that on paper you would say, no, that's that's half an hour. We don't need a feature of that. That's a half hour episode in an anthology series. Like We're good with that. But yeah. then you watch it and it's like, no, this needed to be a feature. Yeah. It really did. Like, even if you think that some of the scenes they added were like padding or, or hammering a point a little far past secure, it still is one of those things where I'm glad it's a feature. Yeah. And it's still a tight, breezy feature. 
you see far more egregious and less successful versions of, I guess, what you would like call like contained or high concept horror, because he is essentially contained to the car. It is taking just one very simple concept and riding it for 90 minutes. And like, if you can do what is it like Ryan Reynolds in a, in a fucking coffin for 90 minutes, or if you can do <laughs> yeah, Colin yeah. Farrell in a phone booth for 90 minutes neither of these things do these as well as dennis weaver in a car for 90 minutes there's a german film from a few years back called the guilty that's just it's an emergency services operator he's a cop i guess cops there actually do work the operating of but he he's like in trouble so they have him answering phones and it's all it takes place entirely in this call center office and it's it's really good i'm kind of hesitant to just blanket recommend it because it is rough like there is some there's some dark bleak shit in this movie but it is one of those things where it's like it's handled really well and normally i don't think that (laughs) like like, yeah phone booth yeah it it doesn't work and dual works and the guilty works too but not quite on the same level But it's just the only example I can think of that's like, you know, that one location thing that actually works. And I think that like one of the things that's kind of fun about Duel is that it it gets to kind of have it both ways. You know, it gets to have this expansive desert and be a road horror movie and have a villain chasing him around while also being about a guy who's in it stuck in a little car. Yeah, Um, who doesn't know how to talk to other men who like... (laughs) (laughs) Who feels threatened by the masculinity of blue collar, truck driving, red state area, presumably men. Like that's another thing. There does seem to be a a post 60s political divide at work here because Dennis Weaver's character is a salesman. He's not like a Hollywood actor or anything, but he's from LA. He's wearing those glasses. He seems like a post 60s, like wants to be, wanted to be a hippie, but was a little too old, a little too establishment, but he's happy to kind of like, take on the affectations of, you know, post 60s Southern California. He's still a square, but he's not like, you know, he's probably open to swinging or something. Like I, I, there's, there's, there's something very like Southern California liberal of the late 60s, early 70s to this character. Yeah, if nothing else, he's definitely just a dweeb. He's got his button up and his glasses and his briefcase. And the movie is aware of this. The story in the movie and the themes of it are all very much about his masculinity. And yeah. it's reinforced all over the place, whether it's in the original cut or in the theatrical cut, where, you know, he gets on the phone with his wife and she's saying, well, why couldn't you stand up? that guy oh my god yeah pawing on me like it doesn't get more overt than that but you know him feeling like he you know oh, you just want me to go pick a fight with so-and-so you know mm-hmm. and it's like yeah i, I do <laughs> you've got that but i also kind of love that like you know and he's got his little car that kind of matches exactly what he's supposed to be i do kind of love little details that like you can decide whether we're reading into things or not but that he uses his briefcase to wedge the accelerator down at the ends you know just the yeah. tools of his existence to kind of like find his masculine He's reaching to find his masculine identity in his career because it's the only thing he still has that that henpecking nag wife hasn't taken away from him yet or whatever. Like, yeah, because he finds himself agreeing with the radio. He parrots the radio when he pulls up. The guy says to him, he says something like, are you the head of the household or something to him? And he says, not anymore. And it's like, he literally just heard that on the radio. He's just parroting the radio. 
He's absolutely just, the movie's very obviously got that on its mind. And it's interesting because it's not a complicated movie. It's certainly not a deep film with a lot of layers to it. It's not nearly as thoughtful or as intellectual or hard hitting as The Incredible Shrinking Man. But it's not devoid of its discussion and its themes. And I feel like there's something elegant about that that I've yeah. always found elegant about it. If it's it's very simple, but these implications are there. Whether yeah. or not it wants to have a you know lengthy discussion about them, it's presenting these things. And you know, knowing Spielberg, it could even just be stuff that Spielberg wanted to hold intact in the adaptation entirely as like narrative propulsion you know, or character filling in. But even if that's all it was to him, you're still putting the implication in the film. I mean, it's the kind of thing where to the point where he lets the truck pass him at one point and he even says out loud, I gave you the road. Why don't you take it? And the truck is bullying him. The truck's like, yeah, you gave me the road, you cuck. You know, it's the kind of thing where I'm glad it doesn't get remade now because a lot of these implication things that are definitely in that film, and it's definitely interesting to see a film from 50 years ago have some of these themes that are still relevant today. But if someone were to make it today, they would probably put that into it. They'd have there'd be a MAGA sticker on the back of the truck. It would right, be right, right. There'd be a deplorable sticker, you yeah, know, or something. Yeah, and the guy would be wearing a hat. Like that's how he would. It wouldn't be the boots he recognizes. It'd be like I saw his red hat, yeah. and you know, he'd probably shout "cuck" or something out the window at him. Like it's like you don't really need to do that. Uh, and that's and, kind of what keeps it evergreen anyway, mm-hmm. is that you don't have to get that specific. I, I think even whereas Incredible Shrinking Man kind of does sort of get specific in, in a lot of ways, which is, I think, kind of natural because that's also a film that it wasn't inspired by a thing that happened to Matheson. It was actually he went and saw a movie. He saw the movie Let's Do It Again, starring Ray Milland and Aldo Ray and Jane Wyman. And there was a scene where... Ray Milland puts on Aldo Ray's hat, thinking it's his own hat. And the joke is Aldo Ray has a bigger head. So the hat kind of like is big on him. And Matheson saw that. And of course, his sci-fi writer brain is just like, what if that was really his hat, though? You know, and to work on this thing. And I haven't read the novel. I've read a decent amount of Matheson. I've read I Am Legend. I've read Hell House. I've read a lot of his original Twilight Zone stories. But I haven't read The Shrinking Man, and I kind of want to because apparently there's a lot more spelled out in the novel than there is in the film. But even the film, it fleshes out a lot of stuff and gets very specific, but it still kind of feels timeless just because it's thinking about, it's clearly thinking about this bigger thing. I'm curious to read it for that reason. Yeah, wow. Also, another another thing, you know, there's marriage strife in both films. There's internal monologues in both films. In both films, they're these kind of small guys that have to deal with bigger things. You know, in one it's a truck, in another it's a cat. Yeah. Even in Hell House, there was this idea that the guy who's haunting the house, who was not the original owner of the house, was not actually as tall as he claimed to be. And so there's, and it just seems to be like a running, you know, you weren't even five yeah. feet tall, or, you know, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I am legend. You could certainly take all sorts of ways. But oh, like, gosh. Yeah. Just the last minute concept is very. Yeah. 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 So it seems like that was a running thing for him. Also, one of my favorite Matheson short stories, and I'm probably not as near, nearly as well read in them as you are, but there are so many that I feel like you can run across other people who read them and still haven't read the same ones. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. Have, He's like Brad Garner. Yeah. One of my favorites is called A Flourish of Strumpets. The The payoff at the end is pretty great. And, and it's a really great you know look at, at like masculinity and family dynamics and moralizing 
not mm-hmm. specifically morality, but like moralizing. You got this cranky head of the household guy character who goes to answer the door one night at dinner when his like wife and kids are at the table eating. And it's this beautiful woman who says like she was sent. I forget exactly what they say. Maybe it was from the company. And she's there to like sleep with the husband. And of course he's like, no, of course not. Get away. How, how dare you? You know, and like yeah. close the door. The payoff's really great. It made me laugh. And it's definitely <laughs> very tongue in cheek, you know, it's yeah. a very funny short story, but I, I recommend it. It's, it's got a good payoff. I'll have to, to it. read it. Cause, and, and again, I, I might, you know, maybe I'll pair that with a novel for this because apparently this, a lot of that, like him not being the head of the household anymore and him being afraid of shrinking you know, he's losing control over his wife and his household. And it's all way more spelled out, supposedly, in the novel, which would probably just make it seem more like satire or more like, more of an absurdist allegory than the real world science fiction that we're supposed to take it as in the film. And Matheson, I'm not super familiar with his life story. No, me neither, actually. But, but this is one of those things where now I kind of want to be. I love the detail in Duel. This is complete, not related. The detail and duel of the license plates, the multiple license plates on the truck is so great. It's New Mexico, Arizona, I think Wyoming, Montana. And then there's another one, maybe California, I would imagine. But I I just love that. I love that, like, you know, it's almost like a comment on the idea, you know, the devil comes in many, you know, he wears many forms kind of a thing. We are legion kind of a thing. There's kind of like a, you can't identify this truck. And it's on a practical level. You know, if you were to call yeah. the police, it's like, what was the plate number? Shit, I don't, which one? You know, yeah. there were six of them. I don't know how to tell you what the plate number was. Uh, and, and according to Spielberg, it was it was also meant to insinuate that they were trophies. Yeah, that the multiple victims. It's it's yeah. like it's like the mobile version of, you know, in wrong turn or any of those backwoods murderous hillbillies movies where they find like a box full of cell phones or something you know it's like the mobile version (laughs) there's also a very age-old like occultist theme in that of the idea of when you can name something you have power over it it's like the idea of if you know a demon's name if you're summoning a demon and you know its name you have power over it and this is you can't know this truck's name the idea that the ability to identify something makes it easier for you to deal with is part of that, I think, which is just something that's in Duel that's not in Shrinking Man that I really, really dug. Although in The Incredible Shrinking Man, it's like (laughs) radiation cloud comes from nowhere and the insecticide that triggers it as a catalyst, you don't know anything about it. So, I mean, that's another thing too, right? Is that the, the introduction of the threats in both of these films, pretty mundane. Right. That's, that's another thing I think that they have in common is this idea that Matheson is taking like an everyday thing and exploding it. In Incredible Shrinking Man, it's that, you know, oh, I got dusted by insecticide somewhere out and about. And then when things really take a turn, his wife leaves the door open and the cat gets in. Right. And it's just like yeah. an everyday thing that, whoops, now there's life and death. And with the introduction of the truck, it's just passing it. Yeah, it's one of those things that I really enjoy, really in any sort of like nice slow burn storytelling is something innocuous, finally kind of boiling over. Like none of these are like the bear at the door where like you start and the problem is already banging at the door, you know, and it escalates. It's very much like this innocuous thing that we've all seen and done. And, you know, like we've driven by and it's never been a problem before. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But who knows now? 
yeah, obnoxious people drive by you. You kind of watch them for a while if you get stuck driving alongside them for a bit. Nothing ever comes of it other than you're annoyed. But like you run into them at the gas station and yeah. you keep seeing them and it goes on. And like just the way that it escalates. I admire that like both of these things are like simple and then they boil over. Matheson had a gift for that kind of thing. It's sneaky. <laughs> you know, you almost you almost don't realize how great it is. It's difficult for me to kind of like be like, all right, we're, we're good with you because <laughs> we literally talk for hours sometimes. Right. But we are coming to the time we're going to wrap up. Is there anything else, any other observations you had about either film? Like, would you, do you think this is a successful double feature? Would you recommend? Yeah, I would, you know, particularly with, with these themes and these, this progression in mind, you know, this, I would recommend watching it in that order, you know, <laughs> I would recommend watching the theatrical cut of Duel, even though the television cut's a nice curiosity. The theatrical cut is just a better film. It, well, it is more of a film. Watch, but they both, watch both of them and make it a Matheson marathon. A Matheson, yeah. if you will. Yeah, Matheson. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely... I thought it was a really successful pairing. It is interesting also... Well done. Uh, Matheson adapted his own work and then he was adapting himself. He was the screenwriter of both of these. I know they brought in somebody else that kind of reworked the structure of Incredible Shrinking Man. It was supposed to be jumping around in time more than it was. And then they decided like the, the screenwriter they brought in made it linear. I read that that's a thing the novel does as well, is it jumps around in time. I always thought when I when I read that, I thought it would have been pretty cool if they had let it jump around in time. Because yeah. if the movie opens with this guy gearing up to fight a tarantula, looking the way that he does at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, shit. You yeah. know? And How does this begin? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that would have been a really in, like interesting promise for the movie to make at the beginning at a time when movies didn't do that very often, I don't think, but I think it's a successful film either way. That's why I'm not surprised that these tools of voiceover get used in both of them. And there are some similarities in that regard, but no, it was a successful pairing. I really enjoyed discovering incredible shrinking man. Thanks to you. Cause I hadn't seen it before. And I don't know that I would have sought it out otherwise. Yeah. And, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a surprising film and it is, it yeah. definitely isn't, because as we said, it's not one that you can kind of say like, oh, this is an easy place in a discussion. It's not a movie that you can say is pro or anti-communist, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. It feels like the majority of 50s sci-fi that we talk about, it's like, yeah, it's pro-communist. Actually, it's anti-communist. Actually, it's that seems yeah. to be the, the constant running debate. And so I do feel like a lot of other things kind of get left behind, this being one of them. It's really just kind of about mortality. And how like you you might have this idea of what your masculinity is and you're going to throw a temper tantrum when that changes. Because he even has that line that I love where he says, a man, he has a size and a shape and a way of thinking. And it's like, it's <laughs> such a rigid idea. And he even says, I, I loathe myself at some point. So it's, it's about this idea of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a patriarch or whatever, and how absolutely not important that is. Right. Yeah. And at no point does he ever have the tools he needs to undo this condition. Right. You spend the whole movie thinking that they're going to think of something, that they're going to find something, and it really is just about him surviving long enough, and it just never plays out that way. And I think maybe that's why people don't talk about it as much, or why 
I think it might just suffer from people thinking it's going to be a sillier movie than it ends up being. Yeah. When you hear the premise and you hear the title and you look at like 1957, you don't think that this is going to be the movie that's doing the thoughtful, hard-hitting stuff. I, I also think that that kind of has a root in this more general idea, too, of dismissal of anything before the 60s. You know, any cultural item kind oh, yeah. of does get treated like, oh, well, Americans made this before Kennedy got assassinated, so how serious can we take it? You know, and it's like, actually, a lot of stuff in the 50s and even 40s and even 30s pre-code. You know, I urge you, if you're listening to this, go and check out some films made before the Hayes Code. Find something, because there's stuff that you're going to be like, Mystery of the Wax Museum in particular is one where it's like, Jesus Christ, they got away with this shit? Any pre-code Lubitsch comedy, you know? But even stuff in the 50s, right? Like, Because the 50s led to the 60s, you know? Those ideas that were going on in the 60s didn't just magically appear when Kennedy was killed. Those are ideas that have roots in the 50s, in the 40s before them. And I do think that we have this idea where we just kind of dismiss anything pre-60s, especially science fiction. That's my rant for the day. I apologize. (laughs) I mean, no, I don't, I don't disagree. And like, I feel like there's even not, not to like take this going too long, but you know, I think that there's a tendency for people to really ignore anything before the eighties recently, just because our tendency to like go overboard with our nostalgia for the eighties makes us forget that there was like really great film in the seventies. And that Mm -hmm. the seventies pound for pound is a much better and more important decade for cinema than, than the eighties could ever dream to be, you know? And so it's a little frustrating. Frustrating, you know, yeah. and I love the 80s and I love all of the slasher franchises that came out of it and like all of the bits of nostalgia that people pull from it. I understand their value, but I think they're really selling themselves short, pretending like cinema started with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. You know, yeah. or even pretending that it started with Jaws in yeah. you know, 75. Like there's a whole era of 70s film mm-hmm. pre Jaws in mm-hmm. only five years that was incredible. Yeah. But I, I do remember in the 90s, and it's probably why I saw Duel in the 90s, is because in the 90s, everybody was like, oh, the 70s was the most important decade in cinema. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And that, I don't disagree with that. I mean, like, yeah, I don't know that I do either. And I know that, like, also depends on whose cinema we're talking about and why. And I'll say that the 70s is definitely a favorite of mine, but I can't claim to be an expert on it in a way where I would, like, go fight everybody on another podcast about it, you know? (laughs) There's a lot of great stuff that came out of the 80s, a lot of great stuff that came out of the 90s. You know, the 90s was pretty fucking incredible in a way that was, I don't think, easy to see in the 90s when you were living it. When you're like looking back at the 70s and the 80s, you weren't realizing what a special decade the 90s was for film. I also I want to say that I I think that in the 90s, we weren't recognizing what a special decade the 80s were. Right. And I think that now that's it's interesting that you brought up the 80s nostalgia, too, because like I don't want to make you feel old, Dan, but the (laughs) 80s were as far we're farther away from the 80s now than the 50s were in the 80s. Right. And it's like, I feel like, yeah, the 80s is to the kids these days. The 80s is their 50s, you know? It's, it's. Yeah. But it's also being fed to them differently through like Stranger Things and, you know. uh, We had that 70s show. Super 8, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, like in the 90s, they definitely, like, Bell Bottoms came back and VW Bugs came back and all that, you know? And there's always that tendency for the next generation to, like, be fed the cultural moments of the generation before them. But I guess my problem with the 80s is maybe it has to do with the amount of saturation we get 
anytime we celebrate something culturally now because we have the internet and we have instant constant bombardment of connectivity so when we decide to share something culturally like the 80s it gets a lot more in your face than it used to it gets commodified in a way that it didn't do as quickly or as efficiently as it does now i think this might go to like a conversation we had toward the beginning of this podcast depending on how much of it we've in but because our generation is growing up more slowly that's part yeah. of why the 80s doesn't feel that long ago. And like, we're still celebrating Big Trouble in Little China or whatever. The same way that like somebody who just discovered it, who's like 20, yeah. is like, oh shit, look at this old movie. But it's cool. It's it's fun. I have a problem with nostalgia being served to me as an entree rather than as an ingredient. You know, I think this honestly, I think this ties into something that both films had to say that we haven't touched on yet is how much the idea of both of these characters' masculinity and therefore the idea of their purpose is tied in with their careers. And in both films, these men are in the business of commodifying things. In, yeah. in, in Incredible Shrinking Man, Scott Carey is in advertising. In Duel, David Mann is in sales. It kind of positions both of these men's identities as irrelevant in this yeah. scenario in which they're being tested. So maybe Matheson has something to say about people being sold their nostalgia or people being sold, you know, an idea of what's important. That would be an interesting thing to look into. I don't know his work well enough, but it does seem like something he would have been interested in. Yeah, some shitty, insecure man sold us the idea that I don't know where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) You, You mentioned commodification and I was like, hey, you know what? Both of these guys are in selling shit. Yeah, no, I think it's just that our ability to commodify something has accelerated. You know, the people can like reach back into the 80s and be like, I want to give people more of what I loved when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. but their ability to kind of to have the rest of the world latch onto it and decide they want to do the same happens so much faster now because of the internet and so forth. So. And then the next thing you know, you can't make a period piece that takes place in the 1970s on a California highway because everybody's moved into the 80s now. (laughs) (laughs) is there anything frustrations with that (laughs) yeah no of course i mean this i'm speaking purely hypothetically here uh speaking of what you're working on right now (laughs) at the moment nothing that i that that i could really go into specifically but i will say it would be great if people could go check out my series la macabre it is finally on amazon prime and on tubi it's seasons one and two. It's 15 episodes. They're about 30 minutes a piece. So, you know, you could probably binge them in half a day if you want. But Duel looms large over particularly season two of L.A. Macabre. And it's pretty easy to see what I'm in love with. And we definitely filmed in a lot of locations that were in the same area and sometimes on the same roads as Duel. And that was intentional because I saw a duel and I was like, this is where I want these stories <laughs> to kind of take place. If I want to know where to film these things and how to get this look and this vibe, I should probably just figure out where they filmed the duel. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great. I, you shouldn't need my recommendation, listeners, but you should definitely <laughs> class. That's your assignment this week. You got to watch Ellie Macabre. It, it really is great. It really is a special thing you accomplished in that show. And people should check it out. People and should not definitely just check it out. For Deputy Smoke's cameo. Yeah, well, look, um, Deputy Smoke is. Let's talk about the fragile masculinity of the character of Deputy Smoke. Yeah. 
<laughs> First of all, smoke is clearly a reference to how, you know, masculinity is a fleeting thing that dissipates like, like so much cigarette smoke. Pong, like trails into never <laughs> <laughs> actually in the episode. Yeah. We just yeah. faded ourselves out because we were never well, really going to stop. Like We found the place where the unbelievably vast meets the unbelievably <laughs> small. I can't talk about Ali Macabre enough, but I, I think I just want people to watch it. And we're going to have you on again at some point. I'm sure I this time it. it'll be Wheels of Terror. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will or, recommend. Uh, maximum Overdrive or the Oh, car. my God. Yeah, it'll be just all three joy rides. The car actually would have been the perfect pairing of Christine and Duel as like where they meet. If you wanted to see like what happens when bloodlines are diminished through inbreeding, you get the car. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Do you want to see this story without the involvement of John Carpenter, Stephen King, Richard Matheson, or Steven Spielberg? That's what the car is. It's this kind of story without those minds attached. If you want your weird 70s desert thriller, but with your supernatural car that you can't explain. Like, yeah, yeah. And like, I don't dislike the car, obviously. No, it's, I actually really was impressed and surprised that I was enjoying it as much as I did and that this thing existed and that I hadn't been aware of it until recently. Yeah. But it, it definitely it does not hold together as it progresses. But it is funny how it overlaps in that Venn diagram between Christine and Duel. Thanks so much, Dan. Where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Dan underscore Ast. You can find me there. You can find L.A. Macabre at L.A. Macabre TV. And those are probably the best places to follow me. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Dan. Class Class deceased. deceased.